The whole premise of this sermon series is that there are 168 hours in every week. But this morning I was praying, like, this is only 167 hours this week. I'm going to have to rename the whole thing Life on the 109. But I, but, but, really that, the hour we lose is an hour of sleep. So I, I still would contend that if there's 167 hours this week, you probably sleep about 47 of those hours, which leaves you with 120. Gathering here for church, gathering with your small group, gathering together to serve and love our community, all these things that we should and, and can do together, most people that wouldn't total more than about 10 hours a week. That means you have 110 hours, even this week, to, uh, to be the people of God as we scatter about everywhere God has called us. And that's our focus in this series. That's our focus this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at a beautiful prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Colossae. And one of my greatest privileges in, of my life, and, and perhaps of your life as well, is that people pray for me. What a great honor that is when somebody says, I'm praying for you. Praying for you. Even right now, at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, there's a group of people who just pray. They're praying for us. They're praying for you right now. They're praying for what is happening in this room, that as we sing praise that God would be glorified, that as we reflect on his word that God would speak to us and would move and his spirit would be very active. They're praying for the Alpha courses that are starting this afternoon, the one in North Andover and the, the young adult one which happens downtown here. Uh, it, they're, they're praying for all these things, praying for you. There's a man who came to faith in Jesus Christ over 40 years ago. And this was his church. This was his, sort of his first church. And he prayed for this church. And he's since moved out of the area. He's long gone. But he, uh, he continues to regularly pray for you and for me and for this church. And, and I know because he emails me probably every month and said, Hey, pastor, how can I be praying? What is going on in the life of the church? I'm not there, but I'm so grateful to God for the role the church played in my life. And he continues to pray for us. Now, I know some people say, I'll, I'll be praying for you or I'll pray for you as a way of saying, I feel bad for what you just said to me, or as a way of saying, goodbye. Uh, but, but there are people, in, in some of you out here, who are committed to praying for me. What a great privilege. Here the Apostle Paul, uh, he's telling a new church very, in a very ordinary place, not a place of great prestige or wealth or commerce or political power, none of those things. It's a very ordinary kind of a place. He's telling them, I am praying for you. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. It's a ceaseless prayer. He's praying this ceaseless prayer for people he's never even met. He's so moved by their faith and by the fact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has impacted their lives and changed them and it's bearing fruit that he just is compelled to pray for them. I love how the Apostle Paul and the early Christians, it wasn't just about, I'm going to now teach you. I'm going to, here's instructions for your church. It's always in the context of prayer and seeking God. So what does he pray for? I've been reflecting on this prayer and the more I look at it, it's a big kind of run-on sentence and it's hard to 
break it up, but it's really two things. And the two things that he prays here is really the only two things that this church needs. It's really the only two things that you need. It's the only two things that I need. It's these two things. You need to know God's will, and you need the power to do God's will. So he's praying that they will know God's will, and he's praying that they will have the power to do it. That's all we need. That's really all the whole the world is searching for. Any sort of spiritual pursuit is seeking. I guess the first question is, is there a God out there who is in any way knowable? And if so, then what does that God want of me? Why did that God create me? And if I can live into, if I have the ability somehow to live into what he's, his plan or his will for my life, then I can live a life that's a life of purpose and of flourishing and of, and of goodness and of meaning as opposed to just wandering around wondering what is the meaning of this all. It's a very fundamental kind of prayer. But note that we don't, it's not being prayed in the context of, well, if there's a God or should this happen, there's a great confidence in this prayer that God will make his will known, that, he, that by his spirit he can give the understanding and the knowledge and with it the power to do it. So let's take a look at this beautiful prayer this morning. Let's pray as we jump into this. Father God, we thank you for this morning. As we gather in your name, as we worship you, Lord, we do it with the confidence knowing that you are here. And we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that you would use this all for your glory, that we would lay aside our preoccupations, that we would lay aside those things that block us from, from hearing you clearly, Lord that you would break through all those things by your grace and teach us and love us and show us your way. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The first thing is the knowledge of God's will. Look at again at verse 9 here, the first verse in your text. It's printed on the back of your bulletin. It says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. This is, this is one of those fundamental prayers. God, let me know your will. What is it you want? When Jesus came and lived his life, he was obsessed with the will of God. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Also in the Gospel of John, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Of course, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is uh, fulfilling all that God has called him to, that God the Father has sent the Son into the world to, to, to live a perfect life and to give his life, even death, on a cross, and he's facing that and he's praying, and he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now, knowing God's will is much more than knowing what God wants you to do, how God wants you to behave. And for people who are not Christians, maybe you're here this morning and you're just exploring the Christian faith, I, I think there's a misunderstanding that when we as Christians start talking about God's will, we're talking about behavior. How does God, as a Christian, want me to behave? That's certainly part of God's will. But knowing God's will is so much more than knowing a list of right and wrong. 
It's about knowing the heart of the creator of the universe. It's about knowing God. It's about understanding his saving work in the world around us. It's about understanding Jesus and who he was and why he came and what he accomplished. To, to know God's saving purposes in the world, his rescuing of a sinful and broken world. It's about knowing that and understanding that, understanding the heart of God and understanding God himself. And that's a bold, that, that's a much bolder statement than saying knowing God's will, meaning I know how to make a right decision. It's about I know what God desires for this world and for my life. So it seems a simple prayer to pray. God, show me your will. Let me know your will. The problem is this. We, we know we should pray, God, your will be done. Jesus told his disciples, pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The problem is we often are inclined to pray, Lord, your will be changed. Or, Lord, my will be done. That prayer is somehow a way that we can manipulate the God of the universe to get what we are looking for, what we really want. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants us to pour out the desire of our heart to him. He wants to know our hearts and, and the things that we want and to see change in the world and in our own lives. But prayer is not fundamentally about getting God to listen to us. And Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, look, God knows what's on your heart. You don't have to use all these words to try to manipulate God. Prayer is not fundamentally about getting God to listen to us, but tuning our hearts to listen to God, to know his way, to know his will. It's not about aligning his heart to my desires, but aligning my heart to his. So that, that this, that's the tension. That's the, the sin within us that... that can pray this wrong, but the beauty of this prayer is that God freely gives knowledge of himself, knowledge of his will. It, we, it's not some mysterious secret that we have to uncover through spiritual power. We ask and God gives freely. This is about, again here in verse 9, it's the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Why does God give it so freely? He gives it so freely because it pleases him. It brings him glory. We can live fruitful lives. Look at verse 10 now. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. You can live a fruitful life. And again, this is what we want. We don't want our lives to be meaningless. We don't want to get up tomorrow and think, I don't know why I'm going to work again today, to a job I don't like, or I don't know why I struggle through this, or what's the meaning of it all. We don't have to live like that. We can live lives that understand God's way and God's work. Apart from, apart from this, well, what is fruitfulness? What does it mean to live a fruitful life? How do you know? What is success? What, is, uh, what are you accomplishing in the world? This, this prayer ground, grounds us to what God is doing in and through us and around us. It's therefore a very practical prayer. Sometimes we think about prayer as not real practical. Well, if I could do something practical, I would, but at least I could pray. Or I've done all that I can, well, now I'll just, I'll just pray. It's, it's very practical in the sense that through this prayer, God can 
by his spirit, help us to understand him and to live it. In, in your 110 hours, living a fruitful life. And it's a life that genuinely pleases God in every way. That may sound like a goal or a hypothetical kind of thing. Oh yeah, my, my life someday will please God. I'm, I'm certainly not there yet, but at some point I'll be able to live in such a way that it will please God. No, you can live a life now that pleases God. God is pleased in your life, even though you're imperfect and even though you're in process. We, that's, how, that's how God works. That's how God sees what he's doing. Remember when God created the world? You weren't there. <laughs> In scripture, it describes God's creating work. And God is, there is a, 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 a world that is empty and it's formless. And God, in a series of days, forms the world, and he fills the world. And at the end of each day, it's, it's not complete, but he says, that's good. It's not done yet, but it's good. And the next day, there's more forming. That's good. And he starts to fill it. That's good. And the world is then full and, and filled, and then it's, it's very good. God looks at our lives the same way. He's, he's making something new in you. He's giving you new life. And as you live into what he's doing, and as we live fruitful and obedient lives, God looks at that and he says, that's good. You may not feel good. You may be really discouraged with the things you still struggle with and the things you still don't understand, but God looks at you and you can genuinely please him in every way because he looks at you in process and says, that's something good that will one day be made perfect. But right now, it's good. That's how God sees you. So as we understand his will, and as we live these fruitful lives that please God, what does that bring about? Verse, again, verse 10, at the end of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So you get more knowledge of, of God. So you see how this is sort of cyclical? So we pray that God, God would help us to know his will. And we do that, and he gives us understanding, and we can live fruitfully, and that brings about more knowledge of God, which would bring about more fruitfulness and more knowledge of God. And it's this beautiful cycle that builds on itself to live this. this it's just a beautiful cycle of life. So what do we do with this? My encouragement to you is to pray this prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray, Lord, fill me with the knowledge of your will, with all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit can give me. Pray it for the people you love. Lord, I pray for my son or daughter that you would fill her with the knowledge of your will in all the way that your spirit can. Pray this, that, that they might know and to, to have those fruitful lives, that, that you might as well. With that prayer, I encourage you, this may seem very simple, but read your Bible. Again, God's will is not some mystery that we need to uncover in this, this, with special spiritual knowledge. You know, God has made it very plain to us, his will. He's given us his word as a guide, as a revelation of his heart. Again, not just a list of rules, but a, a description of all of his saving work in the world. And maybe, we, maybe it's time for you to, to reconnect and recommit to feasting on God's word daily. This is the, we're in a season called Lent, and that's a season where we, uh, as Christians traditionally will just prepare their hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. And it's a 40-day season where sometimes people will 
give things up and they'll fast in different ways or they may take on different practices and discipline that, to help focus and draw near to God. Maybe recommitting to God's word is part of that for you. The same Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It's not about having some great spiritual knowledge. Just don't be foolish. Don't ignore it. It's right there, and he's given it to us. We can know his will. And that's the first step. But knowing God's will is just half the equation, isn't it? I mean, you can know God's will. But without the power and the strength to do God's will, we, we're sort of lost. You know, the hygienist says, you know, you should floss your teeth every day. Well, it's good to know. You've got to take the thing out and string it and stick it between your teeth for it to actually mean anything. I I, it's a true story. I told the hygienist once. She said, she said, how often do you floss? And I said, twice a year. You do it. <laughs> and um, so you chuckled. She didn't. She didn't think that was funny, not even a little bit. And I was kidding. Obviously, we floss. But she, she did not. She did not laugh. Um, we can know God's will. We need the power to do it. So this is, this is the rest of the prayer here. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's about being strengthened with all of God's power. God is a God of power. Right from creation, God creates out of nothing. That's the power of God. And then God chooses in, in, a, in a broken and a sinful world, a world that has gone away from him and his way and his power, it, choosing to save and redeem that world. And he showed his power through the nation of Israel, a people who he said, I'm going to bless and save the world through you. And we see his power. And then Jesus comes on the scene and we see God's power through Jesus, through the miracles, through his amazing love, and most powerfully through his death and his resurrection, his victory over even death. That's the power of God. You know what the Bible says? That same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to you. The same power. That's the power that we need to live it out. And in this context, that power gives us two things. Endurance and patience. So this is strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Those two Greek words, endurance and patience, they're actually very similar. The difference is this. We need endurance because in life we face impossible situations. And we need patience because in life we face impossible people. So endurance is more about situations. Patience is more about people. And this is what we face every day. We need this endurance and this patience. About a week and a half ago, we had our Ash Wednesday service. Some of you were able to join us for that over at the North Andover campus. Great time of worship. If you're not familiar with Ash Wednesday, and you know, Christians put ashes on their bodies at the beginning of this season of Lent, which for some people seems a little weird. It, quite honestly, it is. It's a little weird. That why does this group of people put ashes on their body? Well, we do it as a reminder. We do it as a symbol of our mortality, that God created us out of dust, and that we return to that same dust, that we are just mortal, and that our, our very life and existence is held in God's hands, and, and ashes is a sign of our mortality. It's also a sign of repentance, our need for forgiveness, our own broken and, and sinfulness. So it's a sign of those things. But the reality is life 
is short and life is fragile and life can our life can be taken from us very quickly and it reminds us of our need for God and it reminds us of our need for endurance because we will face impossible situations in life and I don't know what yours is someone might say you know I'm sick with a life-threatening disease and the medical treatment which might make me better also might make me more sick and this might kill me that's an impossible situation I'm out of work but I'm kind of too far in my career, too old to, no, to be rehired. Nobody wants me. This is an impossible situation. I've dug a hole too deep with debt and credit cards, and I, I, I'm barely making my minimums. I will never get out of this financial situation. This is an impossible situation, and it's in these moments where we need endurance. We need the power of God to give us the endurance to face these things. Maybe for you it's not an impossible situation, but an impossible person. Someone could say, oh my, uh, this is the family member who won't forgive and won't talk to me, who's estranged. This is an impossible person. Or there's the person who lied to me, and that hurt me, and they continue to lie to me. This is an impossible person. A co-worker who undermines everything I do. A boss who never gives me credit I deserve. This is impossible. Like passive-aggressive neighbor who keeps leaving things on my... Not my neighbor. This is hypothetical. My neighbors are awesome. And here are the prayers. We can live fruitful lives in the midst of impossible situations and impossible people. And the very next thing is joy, giving joy and thanks to the Father. This, having this endurance and patience and living this way brings joy. I found this quote this week. It was an uh, Anglican bishop named Moole from the last century. He said, if joy is not rooted in the soil of suffering, it is shallow. If joy is not rooted in the soil of suffering, it is shallow. There's, there's a joy that we can have in the midst of these impossible things that is greater and deeper than any other joy that you can experience. It is a beautiful joy. When we know God's will, and when God gives us the power to live a fruitful life, even in the midst of impossible things. And of course it leads to gratitude. Look at verse 12. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people and the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That God has done this for you. He has given you this way of life. He has qualified you. And every week when we gather, we need to remind ourselves, God looks at me and he looks at me and he sees qualified for heaven. Qualified for heaven. He's given that to us. It, so we can have this joyful thing, remembering that God has done that. And when we think about God, and you think about God looking at you, what is, what, how do you picture God looking at you? Do you picture him disappointed? Sort of, oh, there he goes again. Same behavior, same old thing. That's not God's posture towards us. God's posture is a posture of love. And you are qualified. You are good enough. You are accepted by the God of the universe. Praise God for that. And we have to remind ourselves, or we'll fall into, okay, God, I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. 
Where God said, no, I want to. Here's my will, and here's the power to do it. Trust me. And this... There's key phrases here. The same way we need to remind ourselves, here the Apostle Paul gives three key words that are, would be a reminder to these new Christians. And in Colossae, they were, uh, there were some Jewish Christians, uh, mostly Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, but there's three words here that would remind people of God's work and what God had done to rescue and save his people. The three words, uh, one in verse 12, is inheritance, in verse 13 is rescue, and in verse 14 is redemption. These all help them remember well. The inheritance. Inheritance, this word would remind the people of God's good work. There was a, a t- if, as you're familiar with your Bible, there was the time of the Exodus. As I said, God had made promises to the nation of Israel that through them the, the world would be blessed, that they would be blessed, and they would be a blessing to the world that God's saving work would be known through them. And there was a time when God's people were, for a number of reasons, they end up in Egypt and they're in slavery. And they're in a terrible situation and God rescues them and brings them to a better place, a better land, a promised land. This was known as their inheritance. Remembering that in Exodus 32, says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your descendants all the, this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So you're in this bad place, but there's an inheritance. There's a, there's a reward on the other side, and I am bringing you there. And the Israelites would, have, would understand the freedom of that, and, and those who understand would would know. And for the Colossians, God is doing the same thing for us. He's taking us from a very bad place and putting us into a beautiful new inheritance place. Verse 13, the word rescue, because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Again, you've been moved from one dark kingdom in slavery and you've been brought into a freedom and a good land and a new kingdom. Israel, in, in that day, was, was known like a son, as, as if Israel was God's son, this nation of people. Hosea 11.1, 1, the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God sees his people as this son who he rescued out of Egypt and put them into the promised land. And Jesus comes on the scene, and, and Jesus is the son Jesus baptized, and a voice comes from heaven, says, This is my son who I love. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is, is, is the true Israel, the true son who comes. And for the, Colossi- for, for the Colossians and, and for us, there's a kingdom of darkness that he's pulling us out of and, and the whole human race is subject to this darkness. It's the kingdom of Satan. It's, it's, it's the world that's been broken by our sin and by the, the sins of others. And just it's, it's a broken place. And we are being rescued out of that into the kingdom of God's son, of Jesus. And the, the third word, redemption, the very technical word, it's about uh, the... It's a transaction that a price was paid, that something was bought out of slavery. So to transfer Egypt from, from one kingdom to the other, to transfer us out of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, there's a cost to that. 
And Jesus came, and in him we have redemption. In him we have the forgiveness of sin. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus came, and he lived this perfect life. And he went to the cross, and on the cross, he takes all the penalty, all the price for our sin and brokenness, and he takes it on himself, and it dies on the cross with him, and he rises victorious from the grave. Sin and death and all the penalty of sin defeated moves us, and as we put our faith in that, he did that in our place as our substitute. As we put our faith in that, we are transferred from this kingdom to the kingdom of light. We have the forgiveness of sins, more than just a clear conscience, more than just, I feel better that the things I've done wrong are forgiven, but knowing that God is undoing all the evil in the world, and we are now part of a new kingdom by which God is rescuing the world and ridding the world of evil. We're part of that. That's you. So that's your status, and we can never forget it. Your status is perfectly qualified to be his people, to be part of that new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, you can live this way of life in your everyday. You can know God's will, and he will give you the power to live it out. And of course, joy and gratitude will flow from that. Now we can go and do it. Now you can leave here and do it. You can know God's will and have the power to do it. Let me pray for you as I finish here. God, I thank you for that you have done this, that you have accomplished this, that you have called us to yourself, that you have bought us by the blood of Jesus, that you have paid all that needs to be paid, transferred us from darkness into light. I pray for anybody in this room who has not experienced that, that today they would say yes. Yes to you. Yes, Lord, I receive this gift of rescue from darkness to light. And Lord, for all of us who have experienced that, may, we, may you fill every person sitting in this room with the knowledge of your will. May you empower every person in this room to have the strength to live it out. May it be for your glory and your pleasure, we pray. Amen.